Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller, the host of this show. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group with offices in Westchester and New York City, and I'm on a mission to change how people divorce. This is Dialogue on Divorce, and we are here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 on WVOX 1460 AM, discussing issues important to families facing divorce. And our guest today is Allison Williams. Allison is founder and owner of the Williams Law Group, with offices in Union and Walt Township, New Jersey. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, is certified by the Supreme Court of New Jersey as a matrimonial law attorney, and is the first attorney in New Jersey to become certified by the National Board of Trial Advocacy as a family law trial attorney. Ms. Williams focuses her practice and the firm services on the issues of child abuse, neglect, and maltreatment. Allison, welcome to the show. Catherine, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to our discussion. I'm looking forward to it, too. And it's really interesting because my practice is really around the issues of alternative dispute resolution. And oftentimes, it really feels like that's the antithesis of issues that surround child abuse or neglect or allegations of the same. But I'm not sure that's really true. And I thought maybe today we'd spend some time talking about the overlap between our two practices and so people could get a better understanding of what happens when there are allegations or fears or concerns about child abuse and neglect when, when families face divorce. Yeah, absolutely. I know that, um, you know, I, I've, I've told you before that I have a lot of respect for the type of family law practice that you have, that you help families divorce in a way that is preserving of their children and their family relationships, even after they have separated their romantic relationship. And what I do is I advocate for children through the parents. So effectively, when these issues come up, when either parent believe that their child is either being abused, neglected, or just simply not faring as well as they could be in the care of the other parent, there are ways that we can address those issues in a collaborative approach, not necessarily once the the state gets involved, but hopefully if we ward off the state, that we can actually still accomplish the goals of the family to divorce in a manner that is preserving of their relationship while also keeping their children safe. I think that makes a lot of sense. And before we get into the conversation, I think we should understand the various levels of these allegations of fears or concerns by either parent that the child or children aren't being well cared for, you know, at one level or actually abused or exposed to inappropriate situations by the other parent. And certainly this comes up in my practice as well. It's not like everything is just wonderful and rosy. So maybe you could help our listeners understand the various levels of seriousness and what might happen at each one of them. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, there are two different categories that are addressed in all child abuse statutes across the country because they are all patterned in every state in the United States on the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which is a federal statute. And the two categories, as I said before, abuse and neglect, are handled largely the same, but they have different implications. So a lot of parents would say, if I think my child is being abused, I must be talking about things such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, excessive corporal punishment. And yes, those things are included, but they are a relatively small percentage 
of the types of claims that get brought to the attention of Child Protective Services. Normally, Child Protective Services gets involved in what we refer to as neglect. So anytime that they receive a call, they're required to go out, they investigate, and they may become involved with a family in cases where you might not necessarily think that this is what one would think of as, quote, child abuse. So they're the cases that we see involving domestic violence. Children can be considered neglected, their emotional needs neglected because a parent is exposing the children to a home fraught with domestic violence. There are also cases where mental health is impaired. So you have parents who have either substance abuse issues or simply have mental health issues. It could be something as mild as mild depression or it could be something very severe like borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia. And if the child is not being cared for or adequately safeguarded from the parent in those issues, Child Protective Services can become involved. So a lot of times when we look at the wide spectrum of issues in those areas, you will see that parents will have these concerns separate and apart from Child Protective Services. You know, if you're married to somebody, you know that they struggle with depression. You know that they struggle with a substance issue. You may not necessarily believe that they would ever intentionally expose the child to the issue. There are some people that are functional alcoholics that never choose to drink around their children. There are other people that suffer from depression but certainly are able to engage with their children on a healthy level. And those concerns don't often come to the forefront, at least from a a parenting perspective, until one parent is not there to observe and safeguard the children from the conduct of the other parent. Sure. So if you're going to have a parenting schedule where let's say dad is the primary parent and mom is going to have two or three days a week of parenting time. Dad may grow concerned that if mom has a mental health problem, that while she previously was able to adapt and exit herself from the family situation when the children were present because you know she knew that her husband wouldn't approve, that same scenario may or may not be present when the parties are living separate and apart. She may or may not choose to conduct herself the same. If she chooses to conduct herself the same, there may or may not be a supportive resource. She may not have someone to give the children to during her allocated time. And because the parties are oftentimes feeling as if they have lost something in their divorce, they have lost the right to be with their children 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because they now have an allotment of time as opposed to a liberal time sharing. Even if it's liberal, there still is oftentimes mom's time and dad's time. Well, sure, of course. You know, they often don't want that burden of having to go to their spouse or their former spouse and say, look, I've got an issue. Can you keep the kids today? So for that reason, you often have kind of a, a self-protection that goes into a place where a parent with an issue really doesn't have much in the way of resource in the other parent that they previously had. So that often creates an issue, and these things come to the forefront during the divorce. And you know, I just want to just stop you one second right there, because I think there's an element here, and it feels like a real sort of fine line between a perception of a problem by one parent and a real problem. And so oftentimes parents disagree about what is appropriate supervision or whether or not, you know, this is appropriate activity or bedtime or, you know, things like that within a sort of range of what would constitute neglect and then, you know, what Child Protective Services might think of as neglect and what might happen. And so I just want to, you know, oftentimes, and and I might even usually, people as parents disagree about what might be the perfect way of handling these things. And that's not really what we're talking about here, Allison. I think what you're talking about is a real problem that becomes exacerbated when people separate and then divorce because of the various vicissitudes of life and the change that comes in living separately. 
Well, I mean, certainly, I think you encapsulated it quite well. The only caveat I would give to that is that, you know, we are to some extent talking about a difference in parenting styles because we know that there's usually an ebb and flow to a relationship. One parent may accede their authority to the other parent simply by virtue of, you know, living in a, in a cohesive unit. And then when the parties separate, the parent who previously was more passive starts to assert him or herself and say, now I want to do things my way and I don't answer to my spouse anymore. Yep. So a lot of times that friction comes and that creates a havoc for the child simply in adjusting to the new life where the child has to adapt to both of the parents serving functionally different than they served the role that they served when they were in an intact unit. But that in and of itself is not the child abuse and neglect concern. I think it goes a step further than that when you get to a place where you have an impaired parent. Exactly. Uh, the parent already had an issue we know that mom has a substance abuse issue, and she previously was able to absent herself from the home because she knew that the father was going to be there. Now, they don't live together. She's not going to absent herself from the home because she knows he will say that she's being neglectful. Sometimes those allegations are 100% spot on. The children are being harmed because the children are left alone or the children are being ignored by a parent or a parent is simply not functional when caring for the children. Other times, it really is that the parent who is separated from their partner now has no trust that their former partner is going to respect those boundaries that were in place during the marriage. And so there's a risk element there. The risk may or may not ultimately materialize, but in the world of child abuse, neglect, and maltreatment, both the child protective services agencies as well as the courts are not just concerned with the actual harm to a child, but really with imminent risk of harm. Once you get to the standard of imminent risk of harm, the state has the right to intercede and remove children from impaired parents or even potentially impaired parents on the risk alone. So even if the risk is not yet manifest, that can create a problem. So one parent will often take the position that they have to be hard on their former spouse because now that there's no assurances that one parent is going to engage in the appropriate behavior to absent themselves from the children or to protect the children from their shortcomings, there is a problem that if mom on her parenting time is under the influence of the substance and she does not call dad to make sure the children are okay, even though the children are not actually being harmed by mom, she may have them with a neighbor, she may do any number of things. The risk in and of itself that Child Protective Services may come in and say, look, mom had a problem, dad did not alert Child Protective Services to the problem, Therefore, dad neglected the children simply by virtue of not insisting that he have full custody of the children or that mom's parenting time be restricted until she addressed her issue. So there's risk involved in not taking a firm stance. And, of course, we know that parties in, in a divorce or even post-divorce oftentimes don't appreciate each other, don't respect each other, and certainly don't want to help each other out anymore. So those issues will often become an element of child abuse and neglect simply by virtue of definition other times, it really is a legitimate concern on the part of a parent that they just don't know what's going on in the home of the other parent. So they, they will assert that it is child abuse and neglect, whether they know or not. You know what? I really want to talk with you, Allison, about what happens when CPS gets involved. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm speaking with Allison Williams about issues of child abuse and neglect in divorce. You're listening on WVOX 1460 AM. 
We're here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on my website, www.westchesterfamilylaw.com, and also on iTunes. So, Allison, what does happen when CPS gets involved? Let's say people are involved in a mediation process and trying to work out their divorce issues outside of court, but one of them feels that there are issues of risk to the children that rise to the level or there's an event that happens outside of a session and one parent calls CPS. What happens then? Well, when the call comes into CPS, they have a required statutory and regulatory investigation process. And that process does not in any way change by virtue of being in a mediation or a divorce or what have you. So they get the call. They have to go out. They have to see the child, the alleged child victim. If the child is verbal, they have to speak to the child. If the child is nonverbal, they have to physically observe the child and document what they see. They must speak to the person who made the report, and they must also speak to the caregiver of the child, the alleged child victim. Once they complete those minimal steps, they can say whether or not there is actual harm to a child, imminent risk of harm, or substantial risk of harm. How long does that usually take? Well, going out and and doing the first assessment, you know, that's supposed to happen within 24 to 48 hours. And they will then continue their investigation for up to 60 days. They have 60 days by statute and by administrative regulation. Most states will vary that only slightly. Some states are 30 days. New York and New Jersey is both 60 days. And within that time period, they're supposed to make a determination as to whether or not they feel there is, quote, abuse or neglect. Many times they don't find abuse or neglect, but they have concerns, and they will make a determination as to whether or not they want to compel a family to engage in appropriate social services to prevent the problem from getting to the level of child abuse and neglect. Other times they say, well, we don't believe this is the most appropriate environment. We think that you can make some improvements in your life, but we're not going to compel them upon you. We're going to make a recommendation. And if we get another call and you have not adhered to our recommendation, we'll take that into account to assess the risk at that point in time. So essentially, when parents are going through any type of divorce, that is, of course, considered in terms of the credibility of the information that comes in. So, you know, they're not just, you know, child protective services workers are not just there to simply catalog the information, but the investigators take that information back to their supervisors and they assess, do we feel the child is at risk of harm? Do we feel there's actual harm or imminent risk of harm in the household? If we determine that there is not actual harm or imminent risk of harm, there's no need to remove a child from a home, but there may be the need for ongoing services. Once they determine what they think the problem is, that, you know, that the home requires some assistance from them, they have the authority to open a case. And many times they will determine that disclosures of child abuse and neglect by children are not credible because one of the parents is angry at the other when he or she makes the report to Child Protective Services. Sometimes children are caught in the throes of a very hostile situation. There may be parental alienation going on that one parent has estranged the affections of the children toward the other parent. In those scenarios, the Child Protective Services Agency will often elicit additional information from a mental health provider and ask for a psychological evaluation or a parenting assessment to determine if the children are genuinely at risk of harm or if the children have been manipulated to say things that would suggest a risk of harm simply because they're going through a nasty divorce process. So I think what you're saying is that the CPS social workers 
are aware of the divorce situation. And it's true that sometimes people in divorce say things that maybe are exaggerated because of the feelings of anger and resentment that surround a divorce and that they're cognizant of that possibility and they take that into consideration and in, in looking at the situation. Absolutely. In fact, the only time that I've ever seen that the status of the, of the marriage, i.e. that the parents are going through a divorce or recently have divorced, is not considered typically in sexual abuse cases. Those cases have a different protocol altogether, and statistically across the United States, there is no variation in the level of substantiation for child sexual abuse in cases of divorce or cases where the parties have either long since been divorced or are in an intact family. And so when they get the reports that a child may be sexually abused by either a parent or a friend of the family or or a relative of the family and a parent may have known or should have protected the child and didn't, those reports will often trigger no additional response, and no additional credibility determination of the information simply because the divorce is ongoing. You'll look at Child Protective Services reports and you'll see an investigation summary that details who said what to whom. When sexual abuse is the issue being charged, the reports are almost entirely bereft of any credibility. They really are just name, rank, and serial number, who said what to whom. Did the child make a disclosure? If so, were law enforcement contacted, and if law enforcement is contacted, it's largely a matter of their investigation at that point. Child Protective Services takes a back seat. Allison Williams focuses her practice in the firm services on the issues of child abuse, neglect, and maltreatment. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller, and we're talking about issues of child abuse and the issues around divorce. So, Allison, in the event that one party does make a hasty call to CPS accusing the other spouse of abuse and then later decides that he or she wants to take it back, is that possible? What happens? Well, of course, any time that an open investigation is pending, either parent can contact the agency and notify the worker that they have information that should be considered. And certainly, one of the parents could say, hey, look, I'm the one who called you. I don't believe that there's really anything here. I misrepresented the facts, or perhaps I was too strong in characterizing my spouse's behavior. We're going through a nasty divorce. In my experience, it rarely happens. What normally happens is a parent says, you know, hey, look, the caseworker, I don't like where this is going. I don't want to have to be in court with you people. I don't want to hear from you once every 30 days. I don't want to grant you access to my home my kids are fine, I'm taking care of my kids and my spouse is relegated to some form of minimal contact, so therefore I want you to go away. And unfortunately, they just don't have that power. Once Child Protective Services starts an investigation, they have a statutory responsibility to make an investigation and to reach a conclusion, typically within 60 days, outlining whether or not they feel this child has been abused or neglected. And each state has different characterizations of it. Some states call it indicated or other states call it substantiated if there is a finding of child abuse. Many states will characterize a finding that there was not child abuse as, quote, unfounded or not indicated. But whatever it's called, ultimately they have to make a determination and that information gets stored in a database and statistically is kept for purposes of both funding to child protective services agencies as well as for foster placement because the number of substantiated or indicated cases impacts what resources are available and how many homes that the state should aim to have licensed every year to take children into their home in the event of abuse and neglect. So that information has a value and it certainly is kept, but because of that, Child Protective Services does not give any authority to the person who makes the report to withdraw the report. 
So it's very important, and I tell parents this all the time, if you're going through a divorce, do not retaliate against your spouse by involving Child Protective Services because you have no control over what is going to happen once the investigation starts. You can try to steer the investigation. You can certainly say to them things that are of concern to you. You can certainly identify areas that you think your spouse may be impairing your child. And by statute, you are required to make those reports if you believe your child may be abused or neglected. But if you're simply calling out of spite, once that case starts, you have no control over how long it lasts. And frankly, a lot of times if the animus between the parties in a divorce rises to the level that a child is at risk of either alienation of affection from one of the parents or, God forbid, emotional distress, you as the person who makes the report could ultimately be the one who was substantiated or indicated for the abuse because the agency may come to believe that you have caused the emotional distress in the child by hating your spouse so much that you can't communicate with them or put your child in the middle. That's worrisome. Allison, I want to make sure that you give our listeners your contact information in case they have any questions about child abuse or neglect. So can you provide information where they could contact you? Absolutely. As you indicated at the start of the program, I own the Williams Law Group. We're located principally in Union, New Jersey, soon to relocate to Short Hills, New Jersey. You can locate us on the web at www.newjerseydyssdefense.com. That is New Jersey spelled out, D as in dog, Y as in you, F as in Frank, S as in Sam, defense.com. And you can always call us for a consultation or even just to get me on the horn and talk about the issues that you may have. I, I often will entertain, you know, a quick talk to people in the public about the issues of child abuse and neglect. You can call my office at 908-810-1083. Thank you. So what I'd I'd like to talk about in the last few minutes of the show is what does the process of the investigation actually look like? And is it supposed to be confidential to people? Do the investigators or social workers or caseworkers speak with fellow employees at the place of work of the parents? What actually happens and what's the procedure? Well, that's a very good question. The Child Protective Services process is as follows. Once they get a call, they are required to report within 24 to 48 hours to the home of the child. There, as we said before, they have to observe the child and speak to the child if the child is verbal, as well as talk to the parents and caregivers in the home. That is the first part of what we call an initial investigation. Beyond that, if they determine that there is any cause for concern based on what has been reported, They have to go further into a formal investigation, and that includes getting information from collateral contacts. Now, that information cannot be released. So as they are gathering information and speaking to third parties, they're not allowed to say to the third parties, here's exactly what we believe about mom and or dad, and here are the ways that we feel the child is at risk. They're only allowed to release that information to the extent necessary to ensure that the child is safe. So typically, you're going to see them talk to people such as children's schools, their teachers and or guidance counselors. Sometimes they will go to the pediatrician and get medical reports. Parents do have the right to authorize the release of medical reports. If a parent does not, they have to seek a court order unless the child is in the care of a hospital facility, in which case they can seek custody and have an absolute right to that information. But in terms of releasing to third parties, they're not allowed to go to your neighbors. They're not allowed to show up at your job. And in my experience, they don't typically do that. You know, they're very diligent in making sure they don't release that information because Child Protective Services records and information are confidential by statute in most states, including New Jersey and New York. 
there are criminal penalties that will attach to disclosure of Child Protective Services records. So the information is relatively confidential, except, of course, if they're trying to find out if the child has been harmed by a parent, oftentimes a teacher or nurse, pediatrician, et cetera, is necessary. Beyond that, you know, parents really don't have much of a concern for disclosure of information except if there is any person who could exculpate, meaning absolve them or demonstrate to Child Protective Services that the allegation of abuse is not true. If the parent offers up their next-door neighbor or their best friend to say that they were not present at the home when the child was injured or something like that, uh, Child Protective Services can release information in that way. So, you know, we just have a few seconds left, and I'm just wondering, just I want to reiterate again one more time that these are really confidential, supposedly confidential services, uh, investigations, and supposedly sealed, I assume, if the if they come back unfounded. Is that correct? Yeah, ab- absolutely. The records are confidential, and the investigation is confidential. Allison Williams, thank you so much for being our guest on Dialogue on Divorce. It's been really interesting, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine, and thank you for the work that you do.